Welcome to Police in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr Vicky Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. This week, we're talking animal rights activism. In particular, we're focusing on those who have protested against fox hunting. Mark Fitzpatrick, who was involved in this activism in Ireland in the 90s, talks us through the work they did and the involvement of the police. We were, we were ambushed in, in full view of the police and had the merry hell kicked out of us in a prolonged, planned assault in front of the police. Uh, and this was their way of saying, if you try this again, this will happen again. In series two, we talked about the right to water protest with Bernie. One of the key things to remember is that we have a right to protest, as long as a protest is peaceful and lawful and a right of freedom of assembly, which allows people to come together and collectively express, promote, pursue and defend their collective or shared ideas. One of the functions of the Gardaí is to protect and uphold our rights. When we talked about the water protest, we focused on certain actions of the Gardaí, how they spoke to people, their willingness to arrest protesters and so on. This episode reflects on a different side of engagement with people who challenge behaviours or policies in the state. Police omissions, how they may fail to act to protect the rights of others. And we'll try and engage with the politics of that, why certain groups may not have their rights upheld. Later we'll hear from Dr Nathan Stephen Griffin of Northumbria University, a criminologist and animal advocate. But first, let's get introduced to Mark. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Mark Fitzpatrick. I'm from Cork City. I haven't lived in Ireland for many years, but I got involved and interested in animal rights from a very young age. It was just an intuitive response to things I saw around me, really. There wasn't any external influence at all uh, about any of this. Uh, I grew up in a highly, as you know, a highly conservative, pretty right-wing uh, country that had very misogynistic and speciesist attitudes towards women and animals, and it was just a terrible place to be interested in anything other than Catholicism and, you know, bad weather, really. So I was interested in, in animal rights intuitively, uh, but it became compounded when I got interested in a specific type of punk rock, which was called anarcho-punk, which was uh, the second or third wave of punk rock groups, um, bands like Crass and Conflict and Rudimentary Peni, and the dead Kennedys and so on uh, began to talk a lot about, uh, exclusively pretty much about animal rights and uh, anarchism and their attitudes towards say the police and government and their take on history. And so, so it was basically an all-in-one package in, in album form with the, with the lyric sheets and all of that that really pushed a pretty hardline animal rights um, approach. So I got very interested uh, in the political uh, aspects of animal rights and how to achieve animal rights through uh, through bands like that, through through the anarcho-punk movement, which was really the heart of the militant um, animal rights movement from the 70s on, really. Uh, without the anarcho-punk movement, um, the Animal Liberation Front or the Hunt Saboteurs would never have had the success they did and would never have taken the issue 
into the mainstream. So they were the, the beating heart and the brain behind those movements. If anyone ever wondered where those people came from, it's generally the anarcho-punk uh, background. I personally find this really interesting, how music can be a highly developed way to engage and express politics. So, uh, I mean, it, it went both ways. There was, there was the skinhead fascist punk and then there was the anarcho-punk. So original punk split into two, essentially, uh, during the early 80s. And um, some of it attracted the extreme right-wing skinhead scene and some of it was uh, uh, appealing to the anarcho, also called peace punk, the anarcho-punk movement, which was essentially a pacifist, anarchist uh, approach to uh, interpretation of history and approach to doing politics. So it was heavily influenced by Gandhi, by Martin Luther King, by the suffragettes, hugely influenced by the suffragettes and what they were doing, uh, particularly in the 1920s and 30s, they were taking very violent direct action in order to achieve their their aims. It, it, was a, it was a barrage of contradictions in a way. There was, there was a big emphasis on pacifism and Tolstoy and Gandhi. There was also an emphasis on more militant direct action. There was a, a confusion between the two. Uh, it was basically a, a youth movement that took itself very seriously, that grew beyond being a move, uh, youth movement and incorporated a very coherent set of uh, principles and ideals and an, an approach to dealing with society and changing society for the better, uh, principally through direct action rather than voting for politicians. So there was a heavy emphasis on, do, on doing things yourself. The sort of slogan would have been, there is no authority but yourself. So rather than look to other people to do things for you, uh, you do things for yourself. Um, it was an antidote to Thatcherism. It was individualist in a sense, um, but it was also very communitarian. So as I say, there's was, was a barrage of contradictions, but its basic sort of thrust was uh, peace and love. It was, it was a, an extension of the hippie movement, but um, it considered itself to be less naive than the hippie movement. And that we learned from what had gone wrong during the 60s and 70s, and we were determined to go forward putting things right via the punk movement, which was the anarcho-punk movement, which was an incorporation essentially of the political hippie movement and the punk movement. Having found his political home in music, Mark got involved in campaigning against blood sports through a neighbour. There was a, a neighbour of mine who was involved in the Irish Council Against Blood Sports, ICABS, who were the, I think, the only uh, campaigning group at the time in Ireland, and, and they're still around today, who campaign uh, through uh, parliamentary means against all forms of blood sports. So there was a neighbour of mine, he was, he was quite a bit older than me, and he, and he asked me to do some banners for the St. Patrick's Day Parade about otter hunting or something like this. So I did these big banners for them and got more drawn into the ICABS uh, movement then. But at the same time, I started to hear about the hunt saboteurs who were getting bigger and bigger in Britain at the time. And I was fascinated by their approach to blood sports. And I tried to push that tactic with ICABS and they basically said that they didn't have the, the manpower or essentially the guts to go out and do this. I asked Mark to explain exactly what hunt saboteuring involves. To sabotage a hunt, you basically do the same thing as the huntsman does. Now, the photographs that, that, that everyone has seen of a fox hunt, of like dozens of little beagle dogs with dozens of guys on horseback, is a bit misleading. When a, a fox hunt goes out, when a pack goes out fox hunting, the only people who are actually hunting are three or four people wearing the red coats. Everyone else is wearing usually black or beige coats. The people in black and beige coats are 
they're, they're rich yahoos out for a ride and out to socialize and out to make deals, right? They're out playing golf, essentially. Uh, they aren't hunting. They're riding their horse. They're following the guys who were hunting. The guys who were hunting wear red coats. One of them, in principle, the, the hunt's master is the main guy hunting. He leads the dogs. He controls the dogs. He actually only controls the, the more mature half of the dogs. And the other less mature, the young pups, have been blooded previously and now are following the, the older dogs, basically. So... The art of hunting, the art of fox hunting, is the art of controlling the dogs, sending them this way or that to flush out any any quarry, whether it be otters or hares or, or rabbits, or in this case, foxes. So the art of hunt sabotage is the same skill. It, it incorporates the same skill. We use voice calls and the hunting horn to send the, the dogs this way and that. So if, if you can suitably imitate the master of foxhounds, his calls and his horn calls, if you can uh, suitably imitate them, then the hounds will think they're, they're being called this way or that by the huntsman and not by you. So you basically gain control of the pack of hounds by, say, for instance, you, you go up onto, onto a hill where you get a good 360 view of the whole hunt and you can see which way the huntsman is sending them. And by logic, you want the dogs to come back the way they've already come so that they're going over and back, over and back the same field that there is no quarry on and it's just wasting the hunt's time. The hunts have a limited amount of time in a given day before it gets dark, basically, to do the hunt. The hounds hunt by scent and not by sight. So what we also do is we lay down a false spray of citronella-infused water in front of the hounds, a couple of hundred yards in front of the hounds, so any smell from the fox is obscured by the smell from the citronella. It's highly effective. So it's the sort of equivalent of going along to a football match and throwing out dozens of extra footballs out onto the field so the players don't know which one is the real football. And if you do that persistently and well enough, then it spoils the entire game. So if you're going down and if you know what you're doing and if you have the right equipment, then you can really uh, obstruct the whole smooth running of the hunt. It means that they're spending more time dealing with the confused hounds and the hunt saboteurs than they are actually trying to hunt. It is quite a, a hard thing to find a fox and then chase it to its death. It's, it, it isn't a particularly easy in terms of skills-wise thing to do. So any amount of disruption uh, is incredibly confusing for, for the huntsmen and for the hounds as well. So the equipment that we had was a recording on a, an old tape when tapes were around in a, in a thing that we called a gizmo, which is basically a recorder with a megaphone attached to it. And it was a recording of the hounds in cry. When, when the hounds come onto a scent and they get really excited and they know there's a fox around, they all start to yelp really, really loudly around. There's this really cacophonous sound of a do dozens of beagles in a really excited state yelping. So anytime a real hound hears uh, an audio of hounds in cry, it immediately assumes that there's quarry in the direction of that sound. So, so they come to you. So the huntsman is trying to send the the pack of hounds north across the field and we're we're bringing them back south again towards us the huntsman sends them back north again and we bring them back south they're going over and back over and back over a 200 yard space and never getting anywhere so that's the art of hunt sabotage perhaps one of the clever aspects of this is the legality of it there's no criminal damage there's no violence there is indeed no harm caused there's nothing unlawful about trying to direct a pack of hounds and so the actions of sabbing are indeed lawful 
where it happens may change that slightly. The Criminal Justice Public Order Act 1994 does create an offence of trespass on any building or the curtilage thereof. Curtilage is the land attached to a building. But there are two caveats. It must be land with a building attached, so possibly not open fields, and it must cause or be likely to cause fear in another person. So it may be that the criminal offence of trespass does occur, but only if someone feels in fear from it. And if it does, then it's highly likely that the hunt are trespassing as well, because hunts do not stick to public property. I left our cabs then. I mean, I wasn't really ever in our cabs, but I, I stopped any involvement with them. In lieu of getting involved in the nascent cork anarcho-punk scene, I began to spike my hair and grow Mohican and all the rest of it and hang around with uh, a lot of the, the other punks around um, Dawn Square and the Peace Park and all that. I left school, I went to art college, I got really involved in the anarcho-punk movement then, so putting on gigs and doing fanzines, and eventually the idea of forming our own Hunt Saboteurs group was floated. Uh, none of us had any experience in this at all. Uh, we were very naive to the law, tactically, wh- how we would do it. None of us had cars or anything like this. So it didn't get anywhere, but um, when I was in my early 20s, I moved to England for a summer. And I was staying, I was living in Edinburgh at the time, and I got involved in, from going along to anarcho-punk gigs, I got involved in the hunt saboteurs in Edinburgh. And went out on one uh, fox hunt there, it was pretty peaceful, I didn't really understand what was going on. But then a few months later, I travelled down with a friend of mine to uh, Sunderland near Newcastle, and we sabotaged for a week, uh, every day for a week, we were out sabotaging coursing hunt. The Hunt Saboteurs have been around in England since 1964. The police have got strategies in place to deal with this in some sort of cohesive, uh, non-emotional way. So it was heavy, it was predictable, and you could negotiate with them. They, they didn't want a hard day, and you didn't want a hard day either. So you could talk to them and see reason with them and come to some sort of arrangement, if you like, um, so, that there's, so, so that they don't need to be as heavy on us as, as, they, as they might be otherwise. So uh, when I was down at Sunderland, uh, it basically consisted of, of an open hair course event. It was the Waterloo Cup type thing of open hair coursing. And it was an annual event. It was the only one left in its country. And there was so many of us there at the time. And I think there's about a hundred sabs there every day from Monday to Friday, all day, every day. And they brought out um, squaddies who worked in a nearby army base out to act as paid security. So there was about, 100 squaddies, about 50 terrier men, all the guys doing the hunting, maybe about 50 police and about 100 of us all congregating sort of in the middle of nowhere um, in these fields around Sunderland, all trying to get to certain places. So the the hunt would be going on in a particular uh, square of fields. There'd be a big ring of security around them and then there'd be all of us around the security. Now, our very presence there meant that there had to be massive security there. The security was costing them £12,000 a day. This is back in 1993. So the security uh, bill alone actually busted them. At the end of this one, they couldn't afford to do it anymore simply because of the security bill. We didn't even have to sad, actually. We had just had to be there, which meant that they required security, which meant the security required paying. So we were able to economically sabotage them by just standing around. But every hour or so, we'd, we'd link arms and walk across the field and try and break through the line of security and they'd fight us. And it was almost a bit like sort of like Braveheart, but without the, the, the horses and the spikes and no one getting killed. But it was clashes of rows of people meeting in a field, squaddies and us fighting. 
and us trying to get past them. And then after a while, the uh, police would have come down and they'd threaten to make a few arrests and they'd set dogs and people. And the whole thing would spread out again. And, and, and we'd go back to the end of the area that we had been on and the security would go back and form a ring again. And then we'd try it again about an hour later to, just to keep it up. So we never actually got close to the hunt. I never even saw the hunt uh, any of those five days. But we, we were such a persistent headache to the hunt organisers that they closed it down from then on and it's never occurred since by piling up the security bill, basically. This is perhaps a really vivid example of how direct action could achieve its aims without breaking any laws. Direct action has a long history. Many of us may have learned in school of Emily Wilding Davis, the suffragette who died after she stood in front of the King's horse in the Epsom Derby. Suffragettes engaged in a range of direct action techniques, smashing windows, cutting telephone poles, leaving chemicals in post boxes. In 1912, they attempted to set fire to the Theatre Royal in Dublin while Asquith was attending. Martin Luther King advocated non-violent direct action to create a crisis and foster tension. There are many examples of where those who engage in direct action are later viewed as those who led the way for real change in society, who spoke truth to power, but who were often arrested, imprisoned and prosecuted for those actions along the way. I moved to Galway in 1994 and uh, just then uh, a group called Alliance for Animal Rights had set up a hunt saboteurs group in Dublin and they were out saving hunts I think since the previous year so I joined them in a few hunts I, I travelled over from Galway and again it was, it was sort of confusing all around we, we'd arrived down in our vehicles to hunt and they would assume that we're hunt supporters and then we'd all get out and they'd take one look at us and know that we aren't the hunt support and we'd spread out and do our thing and that, and that just uh, basically involved ca- causing as much chaos in terms of shouting and confusing the hounds and distracting the hounds so that they didn't know who was who and what to do and it just it just caused such confusion that the hunt couldn't carry on so again it was sort of a primitive way of going about it but it did give you sort of a flavor of what to expect and the sort of the raw experience of it because it is quite intimidating when you're being approached by people on horseback they're so much bigger than you they have so much more power than you And they have whips and they have a law on their side. And a lot of them are vets, a lot of them are police, some of them are judges. So you're dealing with the upper strata of society on horseback, a very smug, um, self-centered, pretty bad lot, really. Uh, Very prone to violence, even though they say they aren't. And they blame us for violence, but they are actually a very tetchy bunch. And if you interfere with what they think is their God-given right to go out and kill an animal for fun, they get very, very upset by this and take the aggression out on you. So no one who who goes out stabbing a hunt is naive to the potential for arrest or for a severe beating. Two saboteurs have been killed in the history of the hunt saboteurs movement since 1964. Two have been killed while stabbing. There's been thousands of arrests, thousands of hospitalizations, but two actual, uh, people who were actually killed and murdered whilst out stabbing and no prosecution was brought because it was deemed to be too muddy. So it, it is quite a violent pastime, if you like, on both sides. He feels there was a clear institutional response to this in Ireland. It was clear that the Irish police and the Irish establishment did not want what was happening in the UK over in Ireland in terms of the success and the the amount of hunts, the hunts of a thousand was going on. So they were very keen to squash it in the bud and, and, and they did that very successfully. Mark set up a saboteur group in Galway in 1994 and it is through this group that his experiences of being policed, mostly of not having the police protect them, come into quite shocking focus. Members who basically 
consisted of uh, people who were involved in her small animal rights group at the time and then some uh, comrades from Northern Ireland and Dublin came to join us on all three of the hunts that we sabbed uh, in 1994, 1995, which was the uh, Galway Blazers fox hunt. And we stabbed them three times. And on the third time, we were we were ambushed in, in full view of the police and had the merry hell kicked out of us in a prolonged planned assault on there's probably about a dozen of us. We all got pretty badly beaten in front of the police. Uh, and this was their way of saying, if you try this again, this will happen again. And it was very clear and it was very effective. The, the sort of lead up to it had been... Um, this was our third time sabbing the Galway Blazers in the same season. They had never been sabbed before, so they really weren't used to this. They had probably heard of it from colleagues over in the UK and Dublin and so on, and, and they knew what the concept was, but they, they weren't expecting us, really. Even though we had declared our intent to sabotage the Galway Blazers in the media via the Galway Advertiser newspaper uh, in the months preceding the start of the fox hunting season, we, we said that we were going to set up a group of hunt saboteurs that we weren't happy with the direction of, uh, of ICABs, that it was too unsuccessful and that we wanted to step things up again. And if, if we were to be taken seriously, if the issue was going to be taken seriously, we need to take it seriously as well. And if we want to get it into the public realm and get it debated, then we need to do more than just hand out leaflets and so on. So given that the 78% of the Irish population are consistently polled, uh, vote against fox hunting, we thought that we had a democratic mandate to go out and enact the will of the majority and stop this killing taking place. The first time that we went out uh, in 1994, September 1994, we arrived out in two vans. We, we drove into the middle of uh, the village where, where the hunt was starting. So when, when the hunt starts, they all sit around or sit around on their horses and they drink some champagne and sherry and all the rest of it and have a few cigars and then they go off hunting. So we arrived on, at that point at these celebrations, these morning time celebrations they were having. And we got out of the vehicles and they could tell obviously straight away that we weren't there to support the hunt, but but they weren't clear as to who we were. So it was just total confusion for them. They didn't know what we were doing. We were uh, shouting and making uh, and blowing through the horn and blocking access to the areas that they wanted to go down. So we were forming lines in front of them. If they wanted to go down a particular bridal path, we, we would stop them from doing that. And then they'd try and ram us with their horses. A few people got whipped on the face with pretty nasty injuries, but we stood our ground and then they backed off after a while. Eventually, the police came down and called the whole thing off because they couldn't secure, they, they, couldn't get, they couldn't guarantee peace, so they asked the hunt to pack up and go home. So we thought that was a huge success because we closed the hunt down. But by uh, any means necessary, whether it was just by us confusing the whole thing or whatever, it still worked. So uh, then the second time that we went out, it was, a, it was a perfect example of really good hunt sabotage because we occupied a hill that gave us a 360 view of the entire area around us, which is West Galway. Uh, and we could see where the hunt were, and by using the gizmo, the thing that had the recording of the hounds on cry through the megaphone, we were able to, to and it was there was perfect audio because we were on top of a hill and there was nothing to block the sound from traveling down the valley to, to, to the hounds and they would come back towards us. The huntsman would eventually gain control of them and send them the way he wanted to. And then we would get controlled back and it kept going on and on and on for the entire day. So uh, they didn't attack us then at all. We drove away, it was all quite peaceful. Again, it was our second time sabbing and we were quite elated really because we, uh, in two hunts, we had sabotaged them successfully both times. So it was, uh, it was really good. The third time that we went out, I think it was January 1995, they had set up an ambush for us. So by this time, they knew uh, our modus operandi, which was basically uh, to have one group of sabs uh, follow the hunt everywhere they went. 
and another group of Sabs in a car to go around to drive around the area and see if they could head them off the pass sort of thing and and lay down false scents and so on. So we, we so we were in two groups. I had a camcorder with me. Uh, I was with about six other uh, Sabs. Did the hunt. Met at Ardrahan village, I think it was, uh, and we met them there as well. We, we split up into two. There was one team in a car and there was us on foot. As soon as the, the hunt set off towards their uh, destination, which is usually a copse of, of trees somewhere where, where they figured a uh, fox was living. So they set off down this bridal path, this long, narrow, really long, narrow path. And about five or six of us follow them. I had the camcorder with me. I was known to be the main organiser of the group. I was also uh, I was also doing a weekly stall, an animal rights information stall in Galway City Centre. So I, I was a sort of known face really amongst all of them there. So I, I was the main target, I think. Uh, also, I had a camcorder, so I was doubly the main target. So we followed the hunt um, down this long, narrow lane and they, they went over a hedgerow into a field and we followed them. And then they stopped. And then they made a big, huge ring around us, all on horseback, about 50 of them. Right, as about six of us, and suddenly we were in the middle of this field, and we saw ourselves surrounded by about fifty people on horseback, all angry as hell. One of them pointed at me and said, "Him, him, get him!" And I had a camcorder; I was an old face and all that. I think at the time I was wearing an Animal Liberation Front T-shirt, which I really shouldn't have been doing. So a lot of them hopped off and ran straight to me, and the butt of the riding crop was just straight onto my head. About five or six of them just hammering me into the head. I was standing there taking it for a while, and then I, I went down onto the ground. I remember throwing the camcorder to a friend of mine, also named Mark. I said, Mark, get this camera, because it had evidence on it, on it, if nothing else. And it wasn't even my cam- camcorder. I I'd borrowed it off a friend of mine. So I threw this to him. And he caught it, and then a lot of hunters peeled off and chased him. And then I was down on the ground, I was getting kicked this way and that. I don't know for how long. Eventually, I managed to stand up, and there was a wall of horses around us, right? Horses, obviously, are very big, muscular, scary-looking animals if you're up, up close to them, right? So I had to squeeze my way through this little, little corridor of horses. I had to squeeze my past two, two, two horses as they were trying to squash the breath out of me by squashing the two horses in to me, right? It was like being squashed. But I made my way out. I ran back the way we had came. I was running down that long, narrow bridle path. I could hear the horses after me, like this galloping, galloping. It was like something after being chased down by the black riders or something like that. I could hear this going on. I didn't dare turn around, but they were right behind me. I was running as, as fast as I could. At the end of the lane was the police car that had been there all along. And there was two cops in there and I could see the whites of their faces. They were still quite a little bit away, but they were looking at this and, and they were looking quite shocked. They weren't doing anything about it. They were looking. So I, I knew they saw everything. Uh, I knew they saw as much as they needed to see. And I was running down towards them. I was thinking, right, if I can get to them, the hunt will probably back off because they aren't going to hit me in front of the police. So I was running down as fast as I could towards them. And then as I was nearing the end of the lane towards the police car, a big crowd of hunt support uh, came in between the police car and the fence and started to head down towards me. So I, th- I, I thought better of continuing on down the lane. So I hopped over a dry wall into another field where I saw a friend of mine, Gary, being set upon by two hunters. They had him in a headlock, basically, and one was kicking him in the face and the other guy was sort of holding his head. So I ran towards the two of them. I sucker punched one. I need the other into the side. I picked up Gary and then we ran over this dry stone wall onto the main road of Ardrahan. I think the deer village was Ardrahan. And basically, almost landed on top of the police car, and the, and there was and there was some other sabs there who were all bruised and bloodied as well, and they were talking to the police. And then the police said to us, "Right, the rest of your group are down at the other end of that village there, so go down there now and then leave this area." 
so I said, uh, can, "Can you can you uh, bring us down in the car? Because it, it's clear that we've been arrested and, and we're and we're afraid for our lives now." And they said, "No, you've you've got to walk down." So the six of us had to walk around through this village, and on each side of the street was the entire village and the hunt support spitting at us, calling us names and kicking and punching us as we were walking down about 200 yards to the other end of the village as the police car slowly drove right behind us, just slowly drove right behind us, windows up, they didn't say a thing, no sirens going, no attempt to help us or to do anything about this, just escort us out of here as we were being assaulted as we were walking down this this little street, it was terrifying. I mean, it was it was like something out of the 15th century, the Salem Witch Trials or something like this. It was I, I didn't believe that there'd be this... Uh, level of violence and this level of police collusion essentially in it as i say we, we weren't naive to this we, we we had seen the reports from the uk i had been saddened before i i knew how aggressive the whole thing could be but i'd never heard of anything like this so anyway we got to the far end of the village where we met the rest of the hunt saboteurs who had been in the car and their car was smashed to bits. The whole, there was windows broken. The side view mirrors were all broken off. The windscreen wipers the, uh, were gone. The, uh, the roof of the car was just thumped in from, from people. Basically, they, they had been surrounded. As soon as they had set off, they were surrounded by a big mob who tried to overturn their car. And when they couldn't do that, they were uh, bouncing, They were dancing up on top of the roof and they're, and they're trying to break their way in through. They were punching the windows, trying to get the cameras that were inside the car and they were just punching punching with their fit there was just this raw animalistic aggression uh that sounded that sounded more more terrifying than what i'd experienced because they, they had no way out they were trapped inside this little car and then eventually the police showed up and the hunt support they were attacking them sort of dissipated and went we we arrived down to find them all shocked and bruised and their car all battered up and some of them couldn't speak some of them were crying all that so we made our way back to where the hunt had started knowing that the police would be there as well so we could point out to the police uh, exact exact individuals who had been attacking us. So we did do this and we went down and the hunt were packing up and they were putting the hounds back into the hound van and all the rest of it. And I went up to the police and said, I, I pointed out exactly who these people, who, who, who had attacked me to the police. So that guy there got off his horse and kicked the fuck out of me. And are you going to do anything about this? And the police, they, they didn't look at me. They didn't talk to me. They got back into the car and they drove away. The police were not the police that day. They didn't police anything. What is described here is problematic in terms of policing in three respects. First, we have both constitutional and human rights to assemble and to protest. The police are required to protect our rights. No protection is outlined here. Two, the police witnessed the commission of crimes, assault causing actual bodily harm, and did nothing. Failures to act, omissions, can be both crimes and breaches of Garda codes. The police should intervene and do their best to prevent the commission of crimes. Three, crimes were reported to the police and they drove away. This would be a dereliction of their duty to investigate crimes. When we spoke about the water protest, we discussed a lot the different methods used or not used by the Gardaí in protest situations. We looked at recent recommendations for reform. Sobbing represents a very different challenge for Gardaí as a form of direct action rather than a traditional protest or gathering. The policing of groups who engage in direct action has long been problematic, perhaps symptomatic of the fact that they are viewed as a group to be policed rather than enabled. Perhaps there is a view that once the action turns from protest to direct action, the right dissipates. But as Mark has said, save for the violence of the hunters, the behaviours of the two groups were identical. I guess 
there's been a sort of range, a wide range, a repertoire of kind of tactics that have been used against animal rights activists. I spoke to Dr Nathan Stevens-Griffin, an expert on the policing of activism, about the methods used to police animal rights activists in the UK. You've got your sort of traditional, I guess you would call it public order policing, whereby protests that are ongoing, street demonstrations are, are policed in a specific way. And I guess the in the UK since 2009, when uh, there was a, a case, Ian Tomlinson, a, a bystander at a protest, was killed by a police officer. And since then, there's kind of been a change in tact from the police in terms of adopting what they call a more human rights-based approach to policing protest, uh, as in not just going up to people and batting them. So I guess that there's a kind of always a conflict between the narrative of what the police say that they intend to do with policing protest and what actually transpires. So you've got that kind of thing. Um, That is a tactic that has been used. You've also got the sort of surveillance of activism. Um, Surveillance can come in many forms, and, and obviously there is the kind of ongoing inquiry into undercover policing. Uh, in England and Wales, um, the Mitting Inquiry, which is looking into the Spy Cops case, whereby over a period of 40-plus years, undercover police infiltrated a variety of different activist organisations in deep, deep cover, intimate state surveillance, um, and employed a range of harmful, unethical tactics whilst undercover. It all started really with... Uh, Well, it didn't all start, but a key element of that has been animal rights related. Perhaps most famously, Mark Kennedy joined a number of environmental activist groups and engaged in long-term romantic relationships with members of these groups, even having children with them, all while undercover. These women did not know that Kennedy was a police officer. It is known that Kennedy was operating in a range of other countries, including Germany and Ireland. There's a famous example of an undercover officer who adopted a false identity and got into a a serious, long-term, romantic sexual relationship with one of his targets. That's something that has has happened. Um, That that isn't an isolated case. There's been, you know, 20-plus potentially cases where that's happened. But in this case, it was London Greenpeace a local organisation that had an animal rights focus as well. Um, and, yeah, he, he infiltrated this group, got together with this woman. He had a wife and kids at home. And he this is, is a guy called Bob Lambert, who was going by the name Bob Robinson, um, and fathered a child with that woman whilst undercover, and then when the kid was about two, disappeared without a trace. And it was only in the past 10 years or so that that woman found out that he was uh, a police officer targeting her and for her sort of beliefs, or for her activism, I guess. And so that, so that kind of, you know, that kind of surveillance, intimate state surveillance has been a tactic that's been deployed or employed by the police to suppress activism, uh, animal rights activism. The Met Police have issued an apology to the women in which they have acknowledged that this policy constituted abuse and a gross violation. 
numerous trials against activists have collapsed in the wake of the revelations. We now know that these undercover police had infiltrated environmental groups, anti-racism groups, various Marxist and socialist groups and animal rights groups. Matt Rayner, known as HN1, infiltrated animal rights groups including the Animal Liberation Front, ALF, and West London Hunt Saboteurs between 91 and 96, while using the identity of a dead boy. A quick search online will give you names and photographs of at least 13 police who infiltrated animal rights groups. So you've got public order police and you've got surveillance, and I guess you've got the the more indirect ways. I think that a, a key change that's happened over the past, since sort of the neoliberal era since 1979, I guess, has been like the explosion of new offences and um, conspiracy offences, like the a shift, I guess, towards what Lucia Zedna calls pre-crime, so targeting activism before it's happened. Um, and that that has been a, a significant thing in terms of nipping protests in the bud before they can actually do what they intend to do. Um, and so people are criminalised effectively at, uh, before the point they've done what they intend to do, even if that is within the democratic principles of, of a right to protest and civil disobedience um, and things like that. So you, you've got that more indirect stuff, I guess, where new laws have come in and, and made it harder for activists to do what they do. This is an important context. I'm not suggesting that Gardy had people undercover in these movements. I've not heard such a suggestion. We do know that Mark Kennedy did Operation Ireland, and we do not know if the state of the Gardy had sanctioned this. But what's important to realise is that the direct action of these groups constituted activities which the British state felt merited embedding police officers undercover to the extent of having children with activists. That's an enormous effort, which suggests the degree of threat that must have been perceived. What is it about animal rights activism that generates or engenders that kind of response? Yeah, and that's a really interesting question. And I guess for, from my point of view, I should probably, you know, indicate my standpoint a little bit and, and say that I'm coming from a kind of critical criminological perspective and also from a, a critical animal studies. So an explicit, I, I am an animal advocate myself. So with that being said, I think that the question I always ask with these kinds of things is that kind of that Latin expression, qui bono, who benefits? And I think that if you look at the Spy Cops case, for example, between 1968 and 2010-11, and, uh, over a thousand groups were spied on, and the vast majority that we know about were left-leaning in some way. So that ranges from yeah, animal liberation front type, what the police would term animal extremism, to all kinds of groups affinity groups, uh, you know, conservation groups, very vanilla groups in the grand scheme of things, um, and as well as sort of family justice campaigns. They spied on the Stephen Lawrence campaign. Uh, they spied on various other racial justice campaigns and family justice campaigns, spied on LGBT groups, uh, trade unions. Um, the thing that unites them all is that they are in a, a leftist paradigm, I guess, but also that they challenge power. And I think it comes down to power. So for animal rights specifically, 
they challenge the profits of the people who make money from animals, but they also challenge the very fundamental idea that humans are superior to animals and that and that our power over animals is right and just and we have dominion and all that and that that's deeply challenging um and and just in the same way that the lawrence family were were speaking truth to the power of the met police or the state state violence or anti-war groups the the military industrial complex the thing that unites these groups is that they challenge power so that that would be the the reason why it, it, it might seem like a lot of money to spend or a lot of um, a lot of effort, but it's really crucial, I think, to people who have power maintaining it is to to stamp down on those who would seek to to change things. We've talked a few times about police culture. One of the identified characteristics of police culture is conservatism. Those in the police have been proven to be both morally and politically conservative. It occurs at a much greater rate than in broader society. Research from the 80s and 90s found that more than three quarters of police voted conservatively. A separate American study could only find three officers willing to describe themselves as liberal. There's a great deal imbued in that. It makes them reluctant to change, defenders of the status quo, wary of those who would challenge the establishment. And it is this culture which influences the decisions made. So when Mark asks the guard for help, he's challenging that culture. In the absence of police action, the group attempted to pursue a private prosecution. Private citizens are permitted to initiate prosecutions against individuals. This is quite an old power, which comes from a time when state prosecutions were perhaps not so well organised. But as recently as 2013, the High Court in Ireland reasserted both the existence and importance of private prosecutions. Mr Justice Hogan stated that the existence of a private prosecutor still acts as an external check against the risk of a rare lapse or oversight on the part of the DPP. We tried to bring a prosecution against them and we, we brought up to the courts the IPP and the IPP decided there wasn't enough evidence to go ahead with, the, with any court proceedings, which was ridiculous because it happened essentially in front of the police. There was dozens of witnesses. We all gave statements. We had proof of scarring and, and blood and the vandalised car as evidence, uh, but it never went any further. It was clear to us at that point that what, what was clear to us were two things. Stabbing housing hunts is an extremely effective way of stopping hunting. And it's, it's so effective that they will do anything that they can to stop it from happening. I, I moved out of Galway, out of Ireland about nine months later. I moved over to the southwest of, I moved to outside of London and I became involved in the hunts tours there and continued to sabotage hunts until the, the ban came through. Fox hunting was banned in Scotland in 2002 and in England and Wales in 2005. It is still permitted in Ireland, Northern Ireland, Canada, France and Australia. There are 39 fox hunting packs registered in Ireland with the Masters of Foxhounds Association. That stopped sabbing, as far as I know, it stopped sabbing anywhere south of the border for the next four or five years. Now, the Galway Blazers continue to be sabbed now and there's a group called the Connacht Hunt Saboteurs, who I was in touch with about a year ago. And they all carry a little pinhole cameras on their coats these days if they're going out. So they, they, they'd heard of the reputation of the Galway Blazers before. I don't know any of them myself personally. They're a new generation. Uh, so hunts having resurfaced again, maybe about five or six years after that incident. So maybe the early 2000s, it started up again. But yeah, for four or five years, after that assault, because it was it was fairly big news at the time, uh, it squashed any any interest anyone had in going out setting. 
Mark reflects on the severity of what he saw that day in Ireland. All in all, I've sabotaged literally hundreds of hunts, otter hunts, fox hunts, coursing, the whole lot, um, uh, bird shooting, everything. One other time I've seen anything like that level of violence uh, in all my sort of 15 years of sabbing in Scotland, Ireland and England. I had never experienced the same level of violence really other than one other occasion than that time in uh, Ardrahan in Galway in 1995. I asked how it left them feeling about the Gardaí. Most of us didn't have a particularly good view of the police in the first place. Uh, but to be honest, most of us didn't have much experience with the police either. Uh, we'd have heard stories, uh, our politics would have meant we were pretty left-wing and some of us were anarchists, so we had particular views on the police in general. Um, in terms of direct contact with them, uh, very few of us had any previous. So whilst we didn't expect them to be helping us, we also didn't expect them to be so blatantly colluding in such an act of violence against us either. Uh, we, we overestimated them in terms of their uh, policing ability. It was very clear that they were on their side and they were doing everything they could to ram the message home that do not do this again. And they were acting as a type of hunt support, basically, nothing to do with the police or policing. So for, 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 all, for all of us, it, it confirmed our positions in society as far as animal rights activists were concerned. Uh, we weren't welcome or politics or ideas weren't welcome. They were seen as a threat to the status quo, which in fairness, they sort of are, I suppose. But we were dealing with uh, the cult of institution, really, as opposed to the cult of personality. These institutions, the police and hunting as an institution are sacrosanct to some people. And to question them and to take action against them is deemed treasonous, essentially. And you're dealt with as a, as a sort of a traitor to the to the race in a little way. And you sort of get this a lot with animal rights. You get people who assume that you think less of humans because you think a lot of animals and nothing could be further from the truth, really. So my view of the police hardened, it didn't change. It hardened and it got confirmed uh, many times over in the coming years as I went out sabbing again. On an individual level, it feels almost like that was what was largely expected of the Gardaí. That's both sad and worrying that people using peaceful means to try and enhance society are left feeling like this about the police. One could legitimately ask, is it any wonder that fox hunting is still legal here if the institutions of the state will stand by and watch as fox hunters attack activists like that? The parallel for me is that recently we had some leaks from the Hunt Saboteurs Association of a, of a kind of webinar, uh, including senior politicians from the House of Lords, senior ex-police officers, members of the Countryside Alliance. Um, and uh, what it showed was what we all suspected is that there is an intimate sort of connection between the police and the state or politicians and, and the police lawmakers when it comes to this kind of thing. And so from the from the UK perspective, fox hunting, hunting with hounds was outlawed. You were no longer allowed to do that. But what what the hunts did was they invented something called trail hunting, which is where someone goes out with the scent of a fox, usually fox urine, and lays a trail, and then they all get up garbed up in their gear 
and they go out and they ride the horses and they have the dogs, but they're just following a trail. And if they happen to catch a real trail of real fox urine and the dogs happen to catch a fox and tear it to shreds, that's not their fault because they were trail hunting. And in that meeting, that webinar that I alluded to, that was explicitly talked about by these people as a smoke screen that is used. So they, they know what they're doing and they know how to how to produce plausible deniability. Um, and so you've got that animal rights activists in that case. I know I spent a lot of time talking about different kinds of activism, but you've got animal rights activists who are sort of enforcing a law and who are becoming police themselves in a way that the police won't, you know, they won't do anything about it often, not all the time, but often. And and that's a problem when it comes to that specific sort of uh, form of, of animal exploitation, abuse, however you want to call it, cruelty, I guess. So there's a really interesting cultural thing with fox hunting about power and about the ceremony of it all and the kind of who who's involved in it um yeah i very much appreciate mark reaching out to sherry's experience with us it says a lot that 25 years on he still feels so strongly about it and remembers the day so vividly Thank you to Dr. Nathan Stephen Griffins of Northumbria for taking the time to share the UK experience on this issue. If you have an experience you'd like to share on Police, please do get in touch. Next week, we'll be talking about the very difficult issue of intrafamilial child sexual abuse. As always, Tony Groves and Brian Agrives Ahead have put great work into the show. To ensure we can keep making it, please support us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack.